if, if our culture today, if it were a car, it'd be making some funny noises right now. It would be like not performing the way that it should right now. And so if your car was doing that, if it was making funny noises, if it was not performing the way it was designed to, what would you do? You would take it to the shop. And so the mechanic, he would hook up his computer to the computer in your car, and he would run a diagnostic. And so the diagnostic is running, and it's done, and then the report starts printing out on our culture car. And I believe it, at the top of the list, maybe not the very top, but at close to the top of the list, some of the report would read out like this. Many are offended in our culture. <laughs> no surprise, right? Many are betrayed or be, being, uh, doing the betraying in our culture. And many are hating each other in our culture. I don't think I'm telling you something that you don't know already. In Matthew chapter 24, Jesus is talking about some things that are going to be indicative of the last days. And this is what he says in verse 10. Many will be offended. Many will betray one another. And they'll hate one another. Then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. But he who endures to the end shall be saved. That word that many right there, that many word that Jesus uses, it could also be translated as uh, great multitudes or a large crowd or the masses. So this is not uh, an issue. This is not just a, a thing that's affecting a, just a small amount of people. This is affecting a large amount of people, a great multitude, large crowds, the masses, many. And this stuff is not just happening out in the world, but it's also taking place right here in church world as well. Jesus said this, we read this passage in John chapter 13 last week. He said, so now I'm giving you a new... I was trying to let you guys redeem yourself from last week. Let's try it again. So I, now I'm giving you a new... Oh, so much better. Love each other. Just as I have loved you... You should love each other. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. So we can't just go, well, I'm just going to let this car make the funny noises. I'm just going to let it not perform the way it's supposed to. No, we got to do something about it. We can't be passive because guess what? The car is only going to get worse if we don't get it repaired, right? And so we can't be passive, and the, the, the non-passive thing to do is to love. To not love is just passive and going hands-off. When you're driving down the highway, if any of you are getting on I-24 later today, don't take your hands off the wheel for any amount of time, because unless you have a Tesla that drives itself, your car is going to end up in the guardrail or in the median or off in the ditch or hitting another vehicle. We can't be passive. When we're passive, that's when bad things happen. And so Jesus is saying, you know what? I have a new command to follow. Jesus also said this, Luke 17. He said, it's impossible that no offenses should come. In other words, if you breathe air, guess what? 
you're going to have opportunities to be offended. Now, the word offenses here in this passage and in and also the other, the other passage that we read there in Matthew 24, it's the Greek word scandala. Scandala. It's where we get the English word scandal, right. And so one of the definitions for scandala or scandalon is like this stick that hunters would use, and they would put bait on this stick, and it would be attached to a trap. And so a small animal or a bird would come along, and they would take the bait on the end of the stick, and then the trap would then capture that animal or even kill that animal. And so Jesus is trying to warn us first that offenses are not, they cannot be 100% unavoidable. It's going to happen. But then the question is, what are we going to do when offenses come? Because Jesus is also warning us that when we get offended, when we accept offense, when we live an offended-filled life, that it's like this trap. It's like a trap that the enemy uses. You guys, it's like, I want to, can I show you the graphic that I wanted to use for this series? Yeah. You remember like General Akbar? It's a trap! You know? I wanted to I, it's like he's warning the rebel fleet. It's a trap, you know? And it, I wanted to use this, but I didn't because then George Lucas's people would call me and harass me. But, but listen, this is, it's a trap. Offense is a trap that the enemy uses to capture us, to take us out, to take us out of the equation. Going back to Matthew 24, G- Jesus shows us this digression. In verse 10, he said that first, what are gonna people do? They're gonna become offended. Then offense leads to betrayal. And then betrayal, if it's not dealt with, will lead to hate. Solomon, the wisest king of Israel, I think he had some things. I think he had some revelation on this. And this is what he said in Proverbs 18, verse 19. He said, an offended friend is harder to win back than a fortified city. Now, back in Solomon's day, fortified cities had something around them that would qualify them as being fortified. Anybody have a guess what that would be? Right, a wall. A wall qualifies a city to be fortified. And why does that wall exist? To protect, to keep the enemy out, right? So that's exactly what happens when a person becomes offended. They begin to build walls in their heart. They begin to build walls, then it goes from their heart to their thoughts. And then you hear that wall come out into their words and then in their actions. And you see, man, that person has built a wall. Another name for a fortress that had a protective wall around it is stronghold. And this is the kind of language that Paul uses in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 3. He says, we are human But we don't wage war as humans do. We use God's mighty weapons, not worldly weapons, to knock down the strongholds. Now, what are these strongholds? He goes on to say, they're human reasoning and they're false arguments. We destroy every proud obstacle that keeps people from knowing God. We capture their rebellious thoughts and teach them to obey Christ. These strongholds, 
are reasonings and thought processes that are contrary to the person of God. They're contrary to the nature and the character of God. They're contrary to his way of doing things. Now, if we look at 1 Corinthians 13, what does Paul tell us about who God is? He says that God, he says that the way that God loves us is an overflow of who he is. Love is not just something that God does. It's who he is. God is love. And so the one thing we know about the nature of love is that love is not a thief. Love gives. It doesn't take. And so here's what happens. We get offended. We get hurt. So we start building these walls of reasoning these thought processes that are contrary to God's way of doing things and his way of thinking to protect ourselves from getting hurt like that again. That's how it starts. Then if we don't do anything about that wall, the natural process that Jesus says is that we will walk into the area of betrayal. Now, I think most of us are probably real familiar with extreme examples of betrayal. If we look throughout history and even entertainment, you know, I was just thinking a few of a few this week and having conversations with a few people. I said, give me some examples of betrayal. And like Robert the Bruce, when he betrayed William Wallace. I was, why is everybody laughing at that? That was an awful moment. Y'all laughing because I'm always bringing up Braveheart. Um, okay, Lando Calrissian. <laughs> betraying, the, yes, I see you, Caleb. Lando betrayed Han Solo and Princess Leia and, and, and uh, Chewbacca. Y'all are like, something's wrong with this guy. <laughs> Caleb, here's another one for you. LeBron. <laughs> LeBron betrayed Cleveland twice. <laughs> oh, once. They betrayed him, right, also? <laughs> this is last year? Yeah. Um. How about some biblical examples? Y'all going to get on board with that? When uh, Jacob betrayed his own father Isaac and his brother Esau. When Delilah betrayed Samson. And then the biggie of all time, when Judas betrayed Jesus, right? And so we've got all these extreme examples of betrayal, but I think sometimes betrayal can happen in other ways too that are maybe more subtle. Let me give you another definition of betrayal. Betrayal is when I seek my benefit or protection at the expense of the one I'm in relationship with. So that can include a lot of things. Betrayal is when I seek my benefit or protection at the expense of one that I'm in relationship with. So here you are. You've built walls of reasoning and thought processes that are contrary to God's way of doing things so that you can protect yourself. Now, if push comes to shove, you will betray. You will seek to protect yourself at the expense of the ones in that your relationship with. And betrayal is the ultimate abandonment of relationship. Now, follow me. When we do that, when we seek to protect ourselves at the expense of someone else that we're in a relationship with, not only have we betrayed that person or have we betrayed those people, those persons, but we've also left Jesus out in the cold. 
And the reason I say that is because of what Jesus said in Matthew 25. This was part of the passage that we read last week, but we didn't get to this part. Remember, he says, when you did this, you did it to the least of these. And we had that feel-good moment about serving. But if you keep reading, he says, when you refused them, when you refused the least of these, you refused me. And so the digression continues. We see it in our culture with divorce. We see it with fragmented relationships. We see it with, with estrangements. Jesus said many will become offended, and that offense will lead to betrayal, and betrayal will lead to hatred. I'm telling you guys, Jesus is saying, hey, offenses are going to come. You cannot do anything to avoid it 100%. There's some things that you can do. But not everything. Not, you cannot avoid it 100%. And when they come, what are you going to do? Are you going to be like that stupid animal that grabs the bait on the end of the stick? Let's revisit what Jesus said here in, in verse 11, Matthew 24. Then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. So who are the many that are going to be deceived? The many that are offended. It's a trap. The many that are offended. So that tells me this. An offended heart is the breeding ground for deception. In Matthew chapter 7, what did Jesus call false prophets? He said that they were like wolves in sheep's clothing. Wolves are predators that hunt in packs. One of the primary ways that the wolf pack hunts is they want to get the animal that they're hunting and isolate them away from the herd. They want to isolate a sheep away from the herd, and that's when they know, hey, now it's time to attack. When the sheep is in the herd, there's protection. There's protection. There's, there's all this, these other sheep around. There's the sheep dogs around. There's the shepherd around. But if the wolves can siphon off a sheep, if they can isolate a sheep away from the herd, then guess what? Sam Elliott's voice comes out of nowhere and is like, sheep, it's what's for dinner. You know? And the wolves know, hey, it's time to eat. This sheep is now meat for my table. Proverbs 18.1 says, uh, Solomon said this, a man who isolates himself seeks his own desire. He rages against all wise judgment. Offense leads to isolation. And this is, Paul said, or, uh, Solomon said, not wise. The thing about this isolation is that it doesn't occur outwardly at first. You can be a part of church still and still have these walls getting built in your heart. And start the process of isolation. You can be part of a great community. You can be part of a city group. But still have these walls. Because you first build them in your heart. On the inside. Not outwardly. These things first fester in your heart and your thoughts. Jesus goes on to say this. Verse 12. He says. And because lawlessness will abound. And that, that lawlessness word right there. Lawlessness is the Greek word anomia. And, and this, it's another way of saying, in other words, they're, they're going to have an utter disregard for God's way of doing things. That's what lawlessness is, anomia, an utter disregard for God's way of doing things. 
what's right to them is in any given moment is what's right. There's no rhyme or reason. It's just whatever I feel is right at the moment. It it's, sounds a lot like to me very closely related to relativism. Relativism is this bankrupt worldview that says there is no absolute truth. And so what happens is you start building these walls of human reasoning, of thought processes that are contrary, apart from God's nature, to protect yourself. And what happens? You start down the path of lawless thinking. This is all part of the trap. Lawlessness is not, it's not just partying. It's not just getting drunk. It's not just getting high. It's not just sleeping around. You know what landed Adam in trouble back in Eden? It wasn't a drug charge. It wasn't because Adam didn't get caught sleeping with a, with a coworker. He didn't murder anybody. Adam simply got out from underneath of God's authority and he did something contrary to what God told him. He did something contrary to God's way of doing things. And where did it lead him? Jesus said this, verse 12, because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. Now, this word love here, there's a lot of different, there's several different Greek words for the word love, but this one, is the word agape. And that is the the word that means God's love for us and our love for God. It's the highest form of love, is agape love. And so Jesus is saying many are going to be offended. They're going to start betraying each other. They're going to start hating each other. They're going to start developing lawless thoughts. They're going to utterly disregard God's way of doing things, and it will lead to their love for God growing cold. Man, this is sobering because, man, I'm reminded of what the Holy Spirit was speaking to us in worship this morning. What, 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 how did you put it, Jamie? God feeds the hungry. God feeds the hungry. But when we live offended lives, our hunger decreases. Ooh, this is just a feel-good sermon this morning, isn't it? That's not what I want for my life. I want my agape. I want my love for God to be fiery, white, hot. Right? You know, the the hottest part of the flame is the white. There's a lot of, you know, you start a fire in your backyard. You may not have the right kind of fuel, the right amount of, of environment to get a white, hot flame. But if those of us that, you know, not me, I said those of us, not me, but those of you that, that work in industries that deal with fire, with flame, with torches, you know the hottest part is that white part. It's white hot. That's how I want my agape love to be. Fiery, passionately in love with God. So if that's what I want, then I need to learn how to live an offense-free life. Can I stop all the offenses from coming? No, I can't stop it. But what am I going to do when I do get offended? What am I going to do? Instead of living an offense-free life, though, I think sometimes we set ourselves up for failure. 
we set ourselves up for an offense-filled life. I think especially sometimes as believers, we do that. And I'll tell you what I mean here. Um, King David said this, Psalm 55, he says, It is not an enemy who taunts me. I could bear that. I could bear if someone that was my enemy, if they started trash-talking me, okay, whatever. But instead, it's you. It's my equal, my companion and close friend. What good fellowship we once enjoyed as we walked together to the house of God. It's the ones that are closest to us that have the ability to hurt us most. And I think sometimes we set ourselves up for disappointment and disillusionment and for offense when we develop preconceived notions that are unrealistic or they're not well thought through. Most of our expectations, let's just make a scale here. Most of our expectations for believers, let's just say they're this high. Then our expectations maybe for our spouses are like this high. Our expectations for leaders in our lives, whether it be at church or in the government or at work, you know, they're up here. And so, you know, if someone, if another believer comes into my life and they don't meet my expectation, they only meet this level of expectation, but they don't come up to here, then that leaves me with this much room of offense because they didn't meet my expectation. And then so then you start down this thought process. I've heard people say stuff like this. Well, my ungodly friends treat me better than my Christian friends. Well, where are they getting that from? Why is that? Now listen, I, sometimes that really truly might be the case. But I think oftentimes that narrative starts to develop in our mind. And that's really not, the, that's really not truth. That's really not God's truth. But we, we start playing this record over and over and over in our mind on repeat. My, my ungodly friends treat me better than Christian friends. Why is that? Because your expectation for your ungodly friends is down here. It's zero. It's ground zero. So anything they do above zero, it leaves you feeling blessed. But, you know, it's like they, 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 cut, they exceeded zero and they come up to knee level. And you're like, oh, man, my ungodly friends, they're so great. Really? Are they? But, you know, my, my Christian brothers and sisters, they didn't, they didn't meet my expectations. And so they left me with that much offense. You see how we set ourselves up for failure that way? Now, we could put all offended believers into two major categories. People that have truly been offended. People that have genuinely been mistreated. And then the second category is like the people that I was just talking about just then, who they only think they've been mistreated. And to use a term from our modern vocabulary and our modern dictionary, it's really in there. Their butt hurt. What does that mean? It means they're overly or unjustifiably offended or resentful by a perceived insult. Now listen, we, the rest of our time here, we're going to wrap it up here in a few minutes. I don't have time to, to talk about both categories of people. And that second group of people, we could spend a whole series on talking about how not to be butthurt. <laughs> but we're not going to do that. But let's talk about when we really, truly get offended. When we've really, truly been genuinely mistreated. What do we do? If you've been mistreated, let me ask you this. Do you have the right to be offended? 
Well, you have the right to do anything that you want to do. You can go to hell if you want to. That doesn't seem like a very bright idea to me, but you can. But let me say this. If you are a believer and you've given your life to Christ, then your life does not belong to you anymore. Your rights don't belong to you anymore. You are now a deacon. You're a servant. You're a waiter. You are now a bond servant. You are now an under rower. Meaning that you are spending your life in ways, of, you're looking for opportunities to serve others and meet others' needs that magnify Jesus and not yourself. Right? So, if you're hurt, you're so offended, you might say, J.D., you don't know what they did to me. Listen, I'm not trying to downplay your hurt, not at all. There have been serious atrocities that have happened to us that, that, are, that are legitimate. I, listen, and, and, and God's not saying, well, get up, just get over it. That's not how he deals with it either. But we have to deal with it. And I would say that an offended believer is someone that has either forgotten or they never really realized what they were forgiven of. Matthew 18, Peter asked this question of Jesus. He says, Lord, how often should I forgive someone who sins against me? Seven times? Now listen, I've heard this, this teaching before where at this time in this period, other rabbis were, were teaching about offense and about forgiveness. And like how many times do you forgive a brother or a sister before you write them off? And so some rabbis might say, you forget about it. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Other rabbis might say, you know, three times. You know, three times you forgive somebody. If they offend you the fourth time, then write them off. So here's Peter maybe going to Jesus saying, Jesus, look how awesome I am because I'm going all the way up to the number seven. Like, Jesus, that's your number, you know. <laughs> seven times if someone offends me, if someone does something, sins against me, should I forgive them? And of course, Jesus does what he always does. And he, he sets a bar that we cannot meet by ourselves. That we can only meet through him. That we can only meet through the power of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus says, no, 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 not seven, but 70 times seven. It's 490 times. And in the book of Luke, he said each day. If you were going to offend me 490 times in one day, that would, you would have to do something offensive every two minutes and 54 seconds. That is taking into the equation that we're not going to sleep that day. That's a, that's, listen, I know some people that can offend me, but that's, like, that's beyond anyone that I know. That's, that's some major offense there. So what is Jesus trying to get across to us? He's saying, listen, the way that we forgive should be modeled after our Heavenly Father. And you know what? God's forgiveness is inexhaustible. There's no bottom of the barrel. You know, sometimes on the weekends we eat ice cream with our kids. 
you know, you get to the, down to the, the bottom of the bowl and you start hearing the clinking going around with the, the spoons on the bowl. Clink, clink, clink. Everybody's trying to scrape up that last bit of ice cream for that last bite. I'm telling you, with God, there's no clinking. There's no clinking. God's forgiveness is inexhaustible. Jesus tells this story then to explain it a little bit better. He said there was a king who was a lender. And this king had lent some money out, and it was time now for this guy who was the borrower, it was time for him to, come to make good on his debt. So he came before the king, and the king had lent him 10,000 talents. Now, that's not $10,000. That's 10,000 talents. So if you're like me, you're wondering, what, what's the equivalent of that in, in our economy now? That would be somewhere around... Seven billion dollars. That's a lot of money. And guess what? This guy didn't have seven billion dollars to give back to the king. He's defaulting on his loan. You know what the king does? The king forgives it. He says, you know what? You don't owe that to me anymore. You forgive him. Guys, that's huge. That's amazing. That's incredible. That's awesome. So let me ask you, who do you think the king is supposed to be in this story? It's not rocket science. It's God, our heavenly father. Why? Colossians 2 says, you were dead because of your sins and because your sinful nature was not yet cut away. Then God made you alive with Christ for he forgave all our sins. He canceled the record of the charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. He forgave an unpayable debt. We didn't even deserve it. We just sang about it earlier. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. So this guy who has just been forgiven this $7 billion debt he goes out, and he now is out looking for people that owe him money. Now, if you're like me, and I've I just been forgiven a $7 billion debt, I might be going looking for people that owed me money to, like, pass, pass it on. You know, pass on the goodness. But this guy found a guy who owed him 100 denarii. 100 denarii. So what, what's 100 denarii worth? It's somewhere in the ballpark of $15,000. Okay? So let me ask you guys this. If you lent someone $15,000, is that a significant amount of money? Yeah, it really is. I mean, to, to me, I mean, I don't know how your bank account is doing and how your investment and your portfolio is, but for me, I would, I would take an extra $15,000. Let me tell you, if someone... Uh, if I had lent out $15,000 to somebody, I would be very interested in getting that paid back to me eventually. So this is not, Jesus is trying to say something. Here he goes, he's not, this is not insignificant. This is not just like, uh, you know, someone gave me a dirty look here. Like $15,000, okay, that's legit. And what did this guy do to the man who owed him $15,000? He grabbed him by the throat he demanded instant payment. And the guy's like, I cannot pay you right now. I don't have the money. And so he had the guy thrown in jail. 
That's the craziest thing I've ever heard. How many of you would agree that $15,000 isn't even a drop in the bucket compared to $7 billion? Jesus is saying the very worst that someone can do to us is like a $15,000 debt, which is not, not, you know, it's not like, oh, well, that's no big deal. But when you compare it to the $7 billion debt that he has forgiven us of, come on. And if you can't forgive someone, then you have either forgotten or you never really realized what you were forgiven of. Listen, what we deserve is hell. That's what we deserve. But God gives us through Jesus Christ. Thank you, God. He gives us eternal life. He gives us healing, spirit, soul, and body. He gives us every spiritual blessing. It's incredible, but it's true. But if we choose offense over forgiveness, do you know what what will begin to happen? You'll start noticing that agape love growing cold in your heart. The fire in your heart for God, the fire in your heart for his kingdom, the fire in your heart for what the things that his heart burns for and the things that his heart breaks for, the fire in, in your heart for his way of doing things, you will find that that will begin to dwindle in your heart just like a fire that isn't getting fuel and isn't getting oxygen. Let me ask you this. Can you roast a marshmallow over a little itty-bitty flame, like over a lighter flame or something? Yeah, you, you can. It does take forever. But who wants to roast a weak little marshmallow over a little itty-bitty flame when you could be grilling some big old 16-ounce steaks on a beautiful roaring fire? Listen. Can God still use you if you live an offended-filled life? Absolutely, he can. Yeah, absolutely. But why would you want to do that? Why would you want to do that? We just prayed over Russell. God, we prayed that ministry would never feel like a chore, but it would be a passion. That's what I want. I want that agape love to be fiery. I want my, fire, my passion for God to be white hot. Holy Spirit has been speaking to us all morning. Through every part of the service, from the time that you even walked through the doors, it's now time for us to decide what we're going to do. I want you to just close your eyes and let's lean into this moment right now. Let's focus on what Holy Spirit wants to do in our hearts. Maybe you're here today and all this stuff that I'm talking about is hitting home with you, but you would have to just be honest and say, you know what, I don't even really have a relationship with God through Jesus. But you feel something urging you to that. That's God's Holy Spirit saying, hey, come, come near. It's drawing you near. And I want to invite you pray with me right now if you want to make a decision to say okay I want to I want to do this I want to follow Christ I want to be close to God I want to know who God created me to be I want to discover what he 
called me to do. I want God to make a difference with my life. I'm tired of doing things my own way. I want to invite you to pray with me. You don't have to stand up. You don't have to come down here. But what I would ask is this. If, if you want to pray today, I want to see who I'm praying with. So would you just do this? Just shoot your hand up high right now so that I can see who I'm praying with. Anybody? Yes, I see that hand. I see that hand. I see that hand. Anyone else? I see that hand. I see that hand. Anyone else? You can put it back down as soon as you put it up. I can see it. Anyone else? Okay, brother, I see that. Thank you. Wonderful. This is the best thing you can do with your life. The Bible tells us that in order to be saved, in order to come into the family of God, there's two steps for us to take to walk through that threshold. And it's the step of belief and the step of confession. we got to believe in our hearts that God raised Jesus from the dead. And then we confess him as our Lord. Meaning, God, you're in charge. Jesus, you're in charge of me now. My life is not my own. You're my authority, and I surrender to you. And so I just want you to pray this with me. I'm going to pray, and you can just just join in agreement in your own heart, whether you raise your hand or not. Jesus, I'm done with going my own way apart from you. I'm done with it. I thank you for dying on the cross as the payment for my sins. I believe that God raised you from the dead. I turn my life away from pursuing my own desires, and I give my life to you, and I declare you is my Lord and is my Savior. Be in charge of my life. I choose to follow you. I choose to follow you, Jesus, all the days of my life. Thank you for calling me. Thank you for accepting me. Thank you for forgiving me. Use my life to make a difference. Amen? It's the absolute best decision you could ever make with your life is to surrender it to Jesus. And the very next step that you need to take is to get into a community of people that are loving and serving God are going to help you discover who God's created you to be. And if you're not already part of Seeds, I want to invite you personally to be part of this community. We're not perfect, but we are walking towards who God has created us to be together. We are in bold pursuit who God is and what he's called us to do. Let's just continue to stay in attitude of prayer and focus for just another minute because let's address this forgiveness thing, this offense thing. Holy Spirit, I just ask right now, in this last moment, I pray that you would liberate us by drawing us to Jesus. Maybe you're sitting here today and you said, J.D., when you were talking, I was thinking of names. I was seeing faces of people that have offended me. And I realized what I was done, what I was doing by holding on to that fence, I realized that it was wrong. And I don't want to hold on to unforgiveness anymore. And I want it out of my life. I want to be free from it. If that's you, I want you to raise your hands right now. Hands are going up all across the room. Yeah. You can put them down. 
Anybody else? Anybody else? Yeah. I, yeah, I see. Several more hands just went up. Yep. Scripture tells us to humble ourselves before God. When you, when you say, you know what, I don't want to hold on to unforgiveness anymore, you're humbling yourself. This is a beautiful thing. Let's everybody stand up together. We're all going to pray together. And this time, let's pray in a, in a way that I'll pray and then you can repeat after me. And you just pray this from the very depths of your heart. Just once you just raise your hands to God. Everybody raise your hands to God and just pray this with me. Say, Heavenly Father, thank you for speaking to me. I'm done holding on to unforgiveness. I realize what was done to me was wrong. But it doesn't justify me holding on to offense. I repent. I renounce unforgiveness. I turn away from it. I thank you that you have forgiven me. You have made me clean. And now I ask you, by the power of the Holy Spirit, to give me the power to forgive from the heart. Grant me the ability to forgive. By your grace. By the power of your love. Now I just want you to release that power of forgiveness that the Holy Spirit gives you. And I just want you to say, I forgive and then say their name. Maybe it's, maybe it's a parent. Maybe it's a family member. Maybe it's an ex-spouse. Maybe it was a leader of some kind that hurt you. But just release the power of forgiveness right now. And you say, I forgive. And then say, just say their name. I forgive them. Jesus, you are good to us. Jesus, Holy Spirit, help us live an offense-free life. That when offenses come, that we don't take the bait, that we don't fall into the trap. But instead, we just come to you and we say, Father, forgive them for they don't even know what they're doing. If we just follow your example, Jesus. Jesus, we declare we need your power in us to do this, to forgive from the heart. Would you just stretch your arms out, stretch your hands out like this? Say, Holy Spirit, fill me with your love. I want a fresh fire for you. Amen? Amen. 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 Thank you, God. Thank you, God. Thank you, God.